Welcome to the Wellesley Free Library Book Report, book rankings and recommendations for when you're ready to read. I'm Heather Lee Byrne, Information Services Librarian at the Wellesley Free Library. Thanks for joining us for Episode 5 of the Book Report Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking with librarian Tyson Bowles, who selects nonfiction history, science, and technology, as well as science fiction for the Wellesley Free Library, about a nonfiction history title. The Rise and Reign of the Mammals, A New History, From the Shadow of the Dinosaurs to Us, by Steve Broussat. Broussat is known for his New York Times bestseller, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World, that came out in 2018. He's an American paleontologist and evolutionary biologist. Broussat was also the paleontology advisor on the Jurassic World film franchise, and he has named more than 15 new species, including the Tyrannosaur Pinocchio Rex, the raptor Zwenwan Long, and several ancient mammals. His research and writing has been featured in Science, The New York Times, Scientific American, and many other publications. Let's get on to the interview. Welcome, Tyson. Welcome to the Wellesley Free Library Book Report. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so, uh, I'm really curious about this book because it's probably not something I would have picked up on my own, but reading a little bit about it, it sounds really interesting. How did you hear about this book? Well, of course, honestly, I saw it in Ingram Advance, which is our <laughs> uh, wholesaler mm-hmm. who gives us a catalog. But... Uh, I knew about it from the fact that I had read his previous book, so I knew mm. of the author already. And um, again, because he's so well-known and because his previous book, Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, was so popular, this got reviewed in all sorts of places. Um, Ingram would just happen to be the first place where I saw it. Yes. So his first book was just really raved about, I think, uh, the New York, no, the Washington Post called it a masterpiece of science writing. (laughs) So this book seemed to have pretty high expectations. Can you give me a brief synopsis of the book? Sure. Uh, Really, the book is the story of mammal evolution. The first half covers the early stages of mammals from when they split from reptiles until the extinction of the dinosaurs. That's the period of time when mammals developed, well, the qualities that we uh, give them to call them mammals, right? Hair, mammillary glands, warm-bloodedness, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the second part of the book kind of lays out what happens after the dinosaurs die. How did the mammals become dominant? How did they diversify and evolve? Uh, up to uh, today, how did they deal with changing climates and environments? And then the final chapter uh, covers human evolution and the future of mammals. So I kept seeing references to the engaging and readable style of the writing. What did you expect going into reading it? You said you read the previous book, but how did it measure up to your expectations? Well, Again, yeah, you're right. My expectations were high because I had read the other book. It's very rare for a scientist to be able to write and communicate to us regular mortals, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mean, that's uh, uh, an art. And, uh, 
this author, Steve Boussant, he can do that. He actually did some time um, doing just that, writing for Scientific American and some other uh, journals. Uh, so he's he's actually has a gift for that, and that's partially what makes the book um, so much fun for regular people, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's not going to bore you to tears with the science, although the science is in there and there are parts that you can kind of skip over if you don't want to know the details of <laughs> mammalian uh, teeth. There's a lot. I don't want to give away. The beauty of the book is that he's giving you all sorts of different interesting facts about mammals all through the thing, things you didn't no. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe one of those things I'll, I'll give away, but I don't mm -hmm. want to give away a lot of these little facts. That's what makes the book interesting. But one of these facts is that um, mammals are the only group that chews. Hmm. Uh, other animals, reptiles, birds, dinosaurs, fish, they all swallow their food whole. Hmm. It's only mammals that have the teeth structure and the jaw structure to chew, mm -hmm. which I thought was fascinating. Who knew that, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're a dentist, you'll love this book because you'll <laughs> talk a lot about the teeth. But um, again, that's stuff you can kind of skim over. Mm -hmm. uh, it's only one or two chapters mm -hmm. uh, in the book. I did find the end of the book uh, more interesting than the beginning of the book, so I was way more interested in uh, the chapters on. <laughs> I was a lot more interested in the chapters on, um, say, the extreme mammals or mammals in changing climate or the ice age mammals or the humans than I was about, say, you know, mammals and dinosaurs or mammal revolution or how did mammals mm -hmm. and these proto-mammals mm -hmm. evolve. Yeah, so I'm trying to imagine how the author creates a narrative out of all these different scientific facts like you're talking about. Do you feel like it is more of a collection of essays or on these different topics? Or do you think he does a good job of creating a bit of a flowing narrative? I think he does a good job of uh, flowing the narrative he does. And um, kind of the way he does it is he, he'll lay out the fossil evidence, right? Mm -hmm. How do we know what we know? Mm -hmm. And it's basically from two things. It's fossil evidence and it's DNA evidence. Mm -hmm. Of course, the DNA evidence is very recent. We only started really collecting it from the late 90s on. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this stuff radically changed what uh, we knew before. Mm -hmm. right? and, and yeah. Around. So... He lays out this evidence uh, telling us, you know, how we know what we know. Uh, he'll often introduce us to other scientists and paleontologists uh, and his experiences on collecting fossils. Mm. So that livens the narrative up a lot. Right? Oh, yeah, he'll I could see that. Not just that we got these fossils and that's why we know, but how we got them with a little story about, you know, when he was at this table or when he met this 
particular paleontologist. Uh, he'll also, occasionally he'll start a chapter, usually with kind of a hypothetical little story, mm -hmm. um, kind of to liven up the narrative, and then he'll explain kind of the scientific evidence behind the story he just put together. Mm -hmm. right? And again, that lightens it up also. And maybe I'll give you an example. Of that. Sure, yeah. Okay. No, that would be wonderful. Yeah, right from the book. Sometime around 325 million years ago, give or take a few million years, a group of scaly creatures clung to a wrangled raft of ferns and broken logs. They were usually solitary and preferred to lie camouflaged in the dense greenery of the jungle, occasionally emerging to snatch an insect before returning to anonymity. But the desperate times had steered them together. Their world was changing fast, their swampy paradise, perched on the boundary between water and land, was becoming engulfed by the sea. The small critters, the largest were barely a foot long, looked around nervously. They had the manner of a gecko or an iguana in the way that their arms and legs stuck out to the sides or their long, thin tail dragged behind. Some of the smaller ones ambled across the rotting vegetation, holding on with their skinny fingers and toes. The older animals just stared out at the vastness of the sea, their tongues flickering as they bobbed in the waves, water lapping up against them. Then a flash of lightning as the thunder crashed overhead, a storm wind pushed a wall of water onto the raft, turning it over and breaking it in half. Some of the scaly critters were washed away by the surge their limp bodies joining the rotting jellyfish and shrimp. Most of them, however, were able to scramble back onto one of the two remaining pieces of the divided raft. As rain pelted the bay and the winds howled, the current split, one sweeping the east and the other to the west. The two rafts and their scaly cargo headed in opposite directions. A few days later, as the storm subsided, the rafts washed up on different shores. As the two bands of critters ventured out into their new homes, they were faced with different challenges, different habitats, climates, and predators. Over the course of many generations, both groups became well adapted to their new environments to the point where each became a new species. Both species then begot other species, and the two major lineages were born. One of them developed two window-like openings behind the eye socket to provide room for bigger and stronger jaw muscles, and the other developed a single expansive opening. The first group, with their two skull openings, are the diaspids. They would eventually evolve into lizards, snakes, crocodiles, dinosaurs, and birds. The second group, with their single skull opening, were the synapsids and they would diversify into a dazzling array of species, including more than 100 million years in the future, the mammals. Mm. He then goes on to explain the kind of the facts behind the story, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a story, and the exact sequence of events probably didn't happen, but it's true that around 325 million years ago, during a time in the Earth's history called the Pennsylvanian period, there was an ancestral stock of small, 
scale-covered critters that lived in lush swamps and forests and that were frequently inundated by rising seas as they split apart with one side of the family tree leading to reptiles and the other side leading to mammals. Hmm, that's really interesting. So I feel like in that, you can see how he's telling a story, managing to tell a story at the same time that he is bringing in all of these really interesting facts about the divergence. So I I guess thinking about splits really stood out for me in that. Are there any themes like that or um, bits of continuity that you noticed that really stood out to you in this book? I mean, of course, there were lots of little facts that, mm-hmm. oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what keeps you going uh-huh. right through the book. So I don't want to give them all the way. Well, but, more than little facts, yeah. like some kind of overarching, uh, something that he, well, he keeps returning to. I, mean, I don't know about keeps returning. What I saw certainly reading through mm-hmm. is that there are definitely certain patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, he's talking of us through a number of extinction events. Mm-hmm. And those extinction events, some of them are volcanic mm-hmm. uh, in origin. Of course, the dinosaurs got wiped out by the comet or asteroid. We don't mm-hmm. know which. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so there was that event. And then there's a lot of serious climate change throughout uh, the hundreds of millions of years mm-hmm. of mammal evolution where the earth becomes very cold or the earth becomes very hot. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how mammals dealt with that would definitely be, you know, bigger yeah. thing. No, that's really interesting. So... I wanted to ask, are there any media reasons why people might have heard of this title? Well, of course, uh, after the success of his rise and fall of the dinosaurs, Mm -hmm. he was tagged to be a consultant on the Jurassic World movies. (laughs) So, of course, that's probably the biggest reason. Uh Yeah. He hadn't been a dinosaur fan and read his book Mm -hmm. earlier. Um, again, because his other book was popular, this book was reviewed in all sorts of places. So mm-hmm. you would stumble upon it. You know, if you read a science magazine, New Scientist, or anything like that, of course, it would be reviewed, but also any, you know, New York Times or what have you would, would review it too. Yeah, okay. Um, and I think this book did get some really rave reviews as well. Um, so what type of readers do you think would particularly enjoy this book? Well, of course, readers that are interested in science, Mm -hmm. right, uh, and would need a a science book. But, you know, I think really it's for anyone that's curious about, right, the deepest nature of ourselves. Why do we look the way we do? Why do we grow the way we do? We raise babies the way we do. Uh, why can we contemplate the world around us? Uh, some of the answers to these questions are, are in this book, with mm. Mammal Evolution. And that is very intriguing, definitely. 
Well, thank you for this recommendation. Um, are there any other authors or titles just off the top of your head that you would recommend to somebody who read this book and enjoyed it? Sure, I'd pick some other popular science books. Mm-hmm. Um, the Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Okay. Um, the Soul of an Octopus by Cy Montgomery. Mm. And maybe The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. You know, okay. Good choices. All right. Do they have some of that same type of engaging writing that you experienced with this author? I think maybe Soul of an Octopus would be more mm-hmm. along that, those lines than the other two. But mm-hmm. yeah, I think they're all well written and, mm-hmm. and interesting. So folks can check this book out at the Wellesley Free Library, Minuteman Library Network. Yes, and I want to mention, too, that it's not just in book form, but it's also available digital audio through Libby. Uh, it's actually read by the author, which is interesting. Oh, that and is interesting. Nice and nice uh, on CD. That's great. Did you listen to it, or did you end up reading it? A little of both. A little of both? Okay. <laughs> yeah, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Did you I enjoy did. the audiobook version? I did. Oh, great. I did. I, he's a good reader, too. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Well, that's definitely something uh, that I like to find a good audiobook. And I do think that authors who read their own, I don't know, sometimes I just notice myself enjoying it a little bit more. Yeah. It certainly makes it interesting, that's for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for speaking with us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. This week on the Wellesley Reader's Report. As always, the full Wellesley Reader's Report is available online at wellesleyfreelibrary.org slash book report. Check it out to see more titles in more categories, including cookbooks and biographies. Each one is linked to the library catalog, so you can click right through to the library record and place a hold immediately. In adult fiction this time, we have a couple of our more established titles sinking down, Verity at four, The Lincoln Highway at number three, but there are two new titles which look really exciting. The first is Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, a horror story about revenge, cultural identity, and the cost of breaking from tradition. This New York Times bestseller has been likened to the film Get Out by Jordan Peele. The story follows the lives of four American Indian men and their families, all haunted by a disturbing, deadly event that took place in their youth. It won the 2020 Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Speculative Fiction, and the Bram Stoker Award for for Novels, as well as the 2021 Alex Award for Adult Novels that Appeal to Teen Readers. This book is the October pick for Annette's Sci-Fi and Speculative Fiction Book Club. It's also gaining traction on book book talk, so come tell us your takes on the last Tuesday of the month at 7 p.m. In second place, we have Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbue, called a compulsively readable debut novel. It's about marriage, immigration, class, race, and the trapdoors in the American dream. It's the story of a young Cameroonian couple making a life in New York just as the Great Recession upends the economy. It has won so many awards, uh, winner of the Faulkner Award, longlisted for the Penn Open Book Award, an ALA notable book, uh, one of the best books of the year by NPR, New York Times Book Review, just lots and lots of people really loving this book. Um, again, it is focused on Jende Janga, a 
Cameroonian immigrant living in Harlem who has come to the United States to provide a better life for himself, his wife, Nanny, and their six-year-old son. In adult nonfiction, we have several titles with a lot of staying power still hanging out on the list from Strength to Strength is at number two and Crying in H Mark at third place. Um, I want to say that I think nonfiction titles have even more staying power than novels. Atomic Habits, which I really enjoyed, by the way, it encouraged me to try to make little changes to some of my to make some of my tasks more efficient, like, oh, editing podcast episodes. But anyway, Atomic Habits is in fourth this week, and it's been hanging out on the list for a really long time, kind of at the bottom. But the number one book in adult nonfiction I'm not as familiar with, it's called The Spy and the Traitor, The Greatest Espionage Story of the Cold War by Ben McIntyre, about Oleg Gordievsky, the Russian whose secret work helped hasten the end of the Cold War. It's a New York Times bestseller, as we might expect from the top slot on our nonfiction list, but it apparently reads just like a spy thriller novel. It's got a pull quote from John le Carré, the best true spy story I have ever read, which is pretty cool. And it has a couple of accolades that aren't as common for books on our list, at least so far in this project. It's a 2018 book of the year from The Economist. And it got a rave review from Bill Gates on his Gates Notes blog a couple years ago. However, it's topping our list because of our own Wellesley Free Library highest accolade. It's the October book pick for the Friday Morning Book Group. In mystery, number one is The Woman in the Library by Sulari Gentil. And the library in question is actually the Boston Public Library. The body was found right in the reading room. It's always in the fancy reading room, right? It's never in the hall by the bathrooms or by the self-checkout scanner. Always in the prettiest, most picturesque space. Anyway, this book looks like tons of fun, bringing in a twisty literary adventure mystery, mystery inside a mystery kind of style, um, as the other occupants of the reading room start to interact after the murder. This book was a USA Today bestseller, Amazon Book of the Month, and a Library Reads top pick. Further on the list, we have a couple of titles we've seen before, The Palm Beach Murders and a Francis Brody novel. But my attention was definitely caught by our second place book, Poison for Breakfast by Lemony Snicket. That's right, he of unfortunate events fame. So this is uh, put out there as a true story, but, you know, only as true as Lemony Snicket himself. And it begins with a puzzling note under his door. You had poison for breakfast. Following a winding trail of clues to solve the mystery of his own demise, this book's take, book takes the readers through Snicket's world in what is, is being hailed as a classic to be. It's marketed as young adult rather than children's but the book is not speaking to any particular age group the way um, the series of unfortunate events was speaking to children. So it's really an all ages mystery. Number one in science fiction this week is a record breaking debut novel that won every major science fiction award. It's Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie. It is a powerful and thought provoking story of a warship trapped in a human body and her search for revenge. This mind-bending premise that a warship that carries thousands of intergalactic soldiers has somehow been transformed into a frail human being is apparently so well realized that it's getting rave reviews from all corners of the bookverse. 
Number two is Fire and Blood by George R.R. Martin. It's likely seeing some renewed interest because of the HBO show, which seems to be gaining momentum from the big updates that I keep seeing about it. The third book this time is a 2011 novel called Leviathan Wakes by James S.A. Corey. Leviathan Wakes is a science fiction novel, um, another sprawling intergalactic saga, and it made it to TV in 2015 as sci-fi's The Expanse. It's number four, but I was pleased to see that Harrow the Ninth, the sequel to Gideon the Ninth that Annette recommended in our last episode, has made it onto our list. Nona the Ninth, the third book in the series, has just come out as I record this. Incredibly appropriately, and seriously, I did not plan it this way, but number one in DVD is Jurassic World Dominion, which the author, whose book Tyson just recommended to you, Steve Roussat, consulted on as the paleontologist, the expert paleontologist um, for the film. So in this film, there's dinosaurs, even more dinosaurs, so many dinosaurs. Number two is Downton Abbey, A New Era, where the cast gets back together to romp around in the south of France as the Dowager Countess hands off a mysteriously acquired property to um, Little Sibby um, so that she will be as moneyed as her cousins or something. And number three, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is more magical Marvel mayhem. I have to confess I have fallen off the Marvel train, but if you are still on it or want to get back on it, this DVD is available and quite popular right now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Wellesley Free Library Book Report Podcast. Special thanks to Library Director Jamie Jurgensen, Assistant Director Kara Rothman, Head of Information Services, Sue Hamelos, all the Information Services Department, including today's guest, Tyson Bowles, the WFL IT Department, especially Axel Thompson, Jeremy Goldstein from the Minuteman Library Network, and to library patrons like you who make this work interesting and rewarding. Please reach out to us with thoughts, comments, and questions via email at wflbookreport at minlib.net. That's wflbookreport at M-I-N